Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. You may be seated. Well, welcome this morning. It is the last Sunday after the Epiphany, so we need to buck up for Lent. We'll be talking about during the announcements all that's coming up, even just uh, in this week. And we're ending uh, this, this season, this season after the Epiphany, uh, with the Transfiguration. That's our focus this morning, as you, you heard in the lessons and in, in the hymnody, that we're left before we journey towards Golgotha, towards the cross, with this vision of Jesus in all his glory. So this morning's going to be uh, a little bit teachy. Maybe you feel that all my sermons are a little bit teachy, so I don't need to say that from your laughter. Okay, I, you know, I, I'm not out there, so I don't get to experience uh, me preaching to myself. So I don't know. I do my best. But I want to unpack what the transfiguration is, what's going on. Because as we read it on the surface, uh, there's lots of things that, uh, without a greater context, might just seem uh, odd or arbitrary or perhaps even bizarre. And so the transfiguration, in terms of setting and seeing, is, is reminiscent of Moses on Mount Sinai. I mean, think about our Old Testament and our gospel. You have mountains in both accounts. You have clouds in both accounts. You have light in both accounts. And these similarities are not incidental, but intentional. Neither Jesus' own actions nor the accounts of the gospel writers is subtle in making this connection. Just write in Matthew 17, 1. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain. Mountains are in scripture imbued with theological significance. They're they're places, sacred places where heaven and earth do business with one another. Mountains are temples, or more accurately, mountains are the places where you build temples and temples are dwelling places for deities. They're, they're homes for the divine. There's mountains, there's clouds present in both accounts. And, and, and clouds, especially in combination with mountains, are signs of the presence of God. Which is one of the reasons, by the way, we don't get to use it in here, that it won't let us, but uh, if, on Christmas Eve we had incense. Because that cloud of incense... It's not just fun to play with fire as dudes, which it is, but it denotes the presence of Almighty God. Exodus 24, then Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. And now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring, devouring fire. So there's this luminous cloud. And then in Matthew 17, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them. And then back to the first part of verse 1. Whenever the Gospels give us a timetable, they're not, they're not just trying to do journalism. When they mention, for example, six days later, we need to pay attention. So six days after what? Well, the text tells us, after Peter's confession. Six days after Matthew sixteen twenty eight as well, the immediately preceding verse where Jesus says, Truly I tell you, 
There are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. The some is referring to Peter, James, and John. But, but why does Matthew include this detail? Why, why does he want us to know it six days later? I would contend it's another connection back to Exodus chapter 24, which says the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it for six days. It's meant to draw us back to Sinai. There is also, as a parallel, the change in, in appearance. When Moses, we, we didn't read this this morning in our Old Testament, but if you skip ahead to Exodus 34, when he finally comes down Mount Sinai, having been in the presence of God, his face is shining. He's aglow with the glory of God. And Jesus' face uh, in his transfiguration shines, as scripture says, quote, like the sun. So there's all these similarities, but there is also profound dissimilarity between the two accounts. Moses on Mount Sinai shone with the glory of God. Jesus on Mount Tabor shone as the glory of God. St. John of Damascus, he lived in the 7th and 8th centuries, in his oration on the transfiguration, writes this. Moses indeed was arrayed with the glory which came from without. Our Lord with that which proceeded from the inherent brightness of divine glory. For since in the hypostatical union, there is one and the same glory of the word in the flesh, he is transfigured, not as receiving what he was not, but manifesting to his disciples what he was. Hence, according to Matthew, it is said that he was transfigured before them and that his face shone as the sun. For what the sun is in things of sense, God is in spiritual things. So there's a sense in the transfiguration it's really the eyes of the disciples, from one perspective, you could say, that are being transfigured. That God enables them through grace to see who Jesus is. Because Jesus always exudes the divine glory from his very person. Moses is present at both Sinai and at Mount Tabor, the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, he's present, Moses is present at the giving of the law and also at the manifestation of the one to whom the law pointed. Thus the presence of Moses standing for the law and Elijah standing for the prophets demonstrates the continuity of Jesus's ministry with what has come before. So what I'm getting at is why Moses and Elijah there's lots of other figures from biblical history that, that could have been there when the glory of Jesus is being manifest. But this demonstrates the continuity between the Old and the New Testaments and that Jesus fulfills the law of Moses and that Jesus is the Messiah 
whom the prophets like Elijah foretold. In addition, if you keep reading in Matthew 17, it was prophesied in the book of Malachi that Elijah would return immediately before the Messiah. So they were expecting this. And as Jesus explains later in Matthew 17, John the Baptist is the fulfillment of that prophecy. He comes in the spirit of Elijah and therefore as the forerunner of the Messiah. However, the presence of the historical Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration could be understood as making a double fulfillment. That Elijah does indeed come immediately before uh, the Messiah and his exaltation, which is the cross. All of this is preparing them for the cross. What's up with Peter? What's he, what's he doing? Why did he want to build three tents? Was, had he been to Camping World and just, was he just so taken aback that, and, and just didn't know what to say in this important moment that he just blurts out, you know, well, maybe we should, you know, camp out, you know? We'll do some s'mores. I mean, without any context, it it seems, again, arbitrary or or maybe just flat out bizarre. It's not. There was this Jewish feast called the Feast of the Tabernacles, or sometimes referred to as the Feast of Booths, where the Israelites, what they would do is that to commemorate Uh, their deliverance at the Exodus out of slavery into the wilderness and to commemorate God's presence with them in the wilderness. Because before they had a temple, they had this tent. They had a portable, uh, even in the Bible, we see portable church like we're doing here this morning, this portable temple where they're they're moving around and setting up a temple under this tent. And so they would have a feast where in order to commemorate what God had done in their midst, they would all go out and stay in little mini tabernacles. It's kind of, cool, kind of a cool thing. And camp out and remember the, the presence of, of God with them in the wilderness. And besides this remembering, besides looking back, this feast was also a looking forward to the end of the age when God would dwell fully and finally with his people. So Peter by wanting to build a a tent, it wants to make a place for the presence of the divine. And he's also recognizing that the kingdom for which they had been waiting had arrived, that God was truly present. And Peter was right. The kingdom of God had arrived through Jesus. But while he was still speaking... He is interrupted by God the Father who says, This is my beloved, this is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. The listen to him is, I think, a rebuke to Peter that he needs to give up his expectations of how the kingdom of God is going to come and embrace those given to him by Jesus. In the previous chapter, Matthew chapter 16, 
Jesus had set his face toward Jerusalem. He starts to speak explicitly of his coming, suffering, death, and resurrection. Peter strongly objected to the death part of Jesus' plan. He could not integrate the gruesome death of Jesus with his own messianic expectations. So so Matthew 16, you know, Peter really kind of goes up and down. Because he's the first to confess Jesus the Christ. He says, well, who, Jesus says, well, who are people saying that I am? Well, some say you're Elijah, some a prophet. And well, who do you say that I am, Peter? You're the Christ, the son of the living God. So Jesus says, you're blessed. He says, upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. You're blessed. You're the rock. And then he starts talking about his crucifixion. And, and Peter's like, no, we're not going to let that happen. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. So he goes from being called blessed, being called the rock, to a few verses later, he's called Satan. Have you ever been in a meeting and your boss gives you a compliment and then you get overconfident in your own ideas and then the next thing you say is not so profound, right? So that's kind of what Peter, he's, he's up there. And then he comes crashing down. And so he has to learn that, yes, the kingdom is present and the kingdom comes through Jesus, But the kingdom comes only through the cross of Jesus Christ. Thus, it seems that the transfiguration, at first for Peter, was a sort of relief. Oh, it's good for us to be here. Jesus, if this is what you're talking about, I'm in. That death and suffering stuff, I don't know what you're getting at, but let's let's stay here. In other words, this is much better than you going to Jerusalem and dying. The kingdom has come, to which the father, in essence, replies, this is the Messiah, my son, the king of the Jews, the Lord of the world. And so listen to him when he says that it is his vocation to suffer and to die and then to be resurrected. It is through the cross that the kingdom comes. So the transfiguration is this. Why does it happen? What's going on with the transfiguration? It's, this, it's a foretaste of the victory that Christ would win on Calvary. And it's also a foretaste of the age to come. It's a foretaste of the beatific vision when we will, we will see God and we, we will be changed and we will be like him because we will see him as he is. It's that foretaste of when um, we are truly and fully partakers of the divine nature, as Peter says. And And the glimpse of that glory that he gives them on Mount Tabor was to sustain them through the darkness of Golgotha. And then even after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, go back and read our epistle. It would serve as a reminder. It was an anchor of their faith. That we're not following cleverly devised myths, but we were eyewitnesses of his glory. It was a reminder of what and whom they were fighting and dying for. The transfiguration is then, again, this glimpse of the beatific vision, that blessed vision which which makes us happy and full, that blessed day when the faithful will see God face 
to face. The transfiguration took place, people argue, but about 40 days or so before the crucifixion. So it is fitting that we ponder this mystery as we are about to enter the season of Lent, where for 40 days, the glorious one will be veiled from our eyes and will press into that alienation that comes on account of sin and death and darkness. So may the vision of the glorified Jesus carry us through the shadows of Lent, reminding us for what and for whom we cast off the works of darkness. We're not repenting out of this sort of sense of Guilt. Yeah, there there should be guilt. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin for walking with the Lord when, when we sin. But it's what moves us to repentance is not just some sort of external or ecclesial pressure to do the right thing. It's a vision of the crucified, risen, and glorified Jesus. As we will sing on Good Friday, that when we survey the wondrous cross, When we behold the Lord Jesus Christ in his glory, in response, we say to that, he demands my life, my soul, my all. May it remind us for what and for whom we cast off the works of darkness. It's so that we can know our Lord. May it remind us that Also, that any suffering we endure in our struggle against sin is infinitesimally small when compared to the glory that shall be revealed by the cross of Christ on Good Friday and the empty tomb on Easter Sunday. So may we be, as St. Peter wrote in our epistle today, may we be attentive to this as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts. May we bask in the light of Christ. And may we, in our hearts, ascend the mount of transfiguration, beholding his glory, and by beholding him, becoming like him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.